everyone, it's Krista Bontrager, and I'm your tour guide this year as we go through the Bible as part of the Route 66 campaign for Grace Church of Glendora. This is the Points of Interest podcast, where we preview this week's reading and get you ready to get into the Word of God. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome to week 17. We're about halfway through the King Me section of Lessons in Leadership on our Route 66 campaign. And this week we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 4 through chapter 22. So we'll really be looking at the bulk of 2 Kings this week. So fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road as we explore the book of 2 Kings. We pick up the story in chapter 4, and we're reminded right away that Elisha is the prophet that's ministering at this time. And really, chapters 4 through the first half of chapter 8 is a summary of the ministry of Elisha. Now let's talk about a few highlights from Elisha's ministry. And in particular, I want to focus on miracles that Elisha performed that both mirror miracles that his predecessor Elijah performed, but were also foreshadowing of the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. For example, we have in the beginning of chapter four, we have the story of a woman, she's destitute, she's concerned that creditors are going to be taking her sons away as slaves. And so what does Elisha do? He creates a way for her to basically be able to support herself. He he creates almost like a small business for this woman so that she will be able to provide for the needs of her and her sons. And he does that through the multiplication of oil. Well, what's interesting to me about that is that harkens back to an incident with oil that Elijah multiplied, but it also foreshadows the ministry of Jesus and the multiplication of the food and the feeding of the 5,000. And so what we have here is a pulling together of many strands so that when Jesus comes on the scene, it's that he's a prophet that has power like that of Elijah and Elisha, the great prophets of old. And yet his power even supersedes theirs in interesting and exponential ways. We also see in the story of the Shunammite woman later on in chapter four, where her son is brought back to life. This again echoes both a resurrection that Elijah performed back in 1 Kings, but it also foreshadows the resurrections that Jesus and the apostles will perform in their ministries. And again, the thread here is that the same God of the Old Testament who empowered Elijah and Elisha is the same God who's empowering Jesus and the apostles. And this provides evidence for the Jews that, hey, it's okay to believe in Jesus. I'm not committing idolatry by worshiping Jesus. Rather, this is God incarnate who has come down in the flesh to earth, and he is performing these miracles like the prophets of old, but even better than the prophets of old. 
When we get to chapter 8, verse 16, we're going to have a little shift in the text. And now we're going back to the storyline of the kings. We're, we're leaving Elisha's ministry behind for now. And we're going back to the story of the kings. We pick it up with Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel. And so remember our distinctions when it says king of Israel, those are the 10 tribes in the north. When it says king of Judah, those are the two tribes in the south and Judah includes Jerusalem and the temple and Judah also represents the line and family and house of David so that is the chosen remnant from which the Messiah will eventually come so remember to keep those designations in mind because as we go through we're going to start piling up a lot of kings a lot of names and a lot of places but if you can just at least remember King of Judah, King of Israel, where those come from, you'll be uh, well ahead of the game. You might also find it helpful to maybe have a Bible atlas on hand because we're going to be seeing the kings interact with kings of other nations like Edom and Moab and Aram. If you know where those places are, it just kind of helps to orient you to what's going on in the text. We'll also be wading through a lot of cities and people will be traveling places. And that's again where a Bible atlas can be very handy. Now, when we get to chapter 9, I have to confess, this is one of my all-time favorite stories in the Old Testament, the story of Jehu. And God anoints Jehu, king of Israel, so he's the king of the ten tribes in the north, to wipe out the house of Ahab and to get rid of all the Baal worship and Baal temple that was set up by Ahab and his wife Jezebel. It's not often that we get a chance to witness God's judgment. You know, when we live in this creation, in this world, it's full of sin. And every once in a while, we get a hint of God's justice. And that's really what Jehu is. He's the arm of the Lord that comes in to wipe out Ahab and his household and all of their wickedness. And that for me is like a, a foreshadowing of the book of Revelation of what God's justice will be like in the end. You know, in the book of Revelation, we're, we're looking to the back of the book. We're looking at how the story ends that God does come as a judge and a king and he sets things aright. And the story of Jehu here in Second Kings chapter 9 is like a little foretaste of that. It's a little glimpse into how swift, how extensive God's justice will be. Another one of my favorite aspects of the story of Jehu is what he does to the temple of Baal in chapter 10. They take down this horrible pagan temple. They demolish it. And in verse 27 of chapter 10, it says they demolished the sacred stone of Baal. They tore down the temple of Baal and people have used it for a latrine to this day. I love the picture of people destroying a pagan place of worship and then using it as a latrine. This is how the one true God views these pagan gods. They are fit to be a latrine for humanity. Unfortunately, the one thing he doesn't do is that he doesn't get rid of the golden calves that Jeroboam had set up in Dan and Bethel. He gets rid of all the idols, all the Baal temple worship and everything, 
but he doesn't get rid of those golden calves that are sitting there in Dan and Bethel. And as a result, he walked in the sins of his father, Jeroboam. Then we get to another awesome story in chapters 11 and 12 about Joash. And Joash is actually related to the house of Ahab through his grandmother, Adaliah. And she's kind of what's left of Ahab's house because she is living down in the south, in the southern kingdom. So Jehu didn't go down to the south to wipe out those descendants. And so she's still down there and she wants to be queen. And so she has this great idea. She's going to kill off all the princes. And there's a plot to preserve the life of young Joash. And he becomes king and serves the Lord. Under the leadership of Jehoiada, the the priest, Joash does really good. He repairs the temple. He restores the, the worship of Yahweh. Unfortunately, after Jehoiada dies, the picture that we get is that he just wasn't able to sustain his faithfulness to God. Basically, Joash gives away the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and in the royal palace and sends them as a tribute to Hazael, king of Aram. Now, if you don't understand what tribute is, that's basically paying off a bully or paying off the mob. And you know what is inevitable about paying off a bully is that the price continually goes up and it's only a temporary fix. So in this case, Joash gives away some of the gold treasures in the temple and in the palace to pay off a bully, a foreign king. And this is part of his unfaithfulness, his inability to trust the Lord, that the Lord would protect his people. Then when we get to chapter 17, that's another turning point in the story. And this is when God has finally had enough of the idolatry of the northern kingdom, the Israelites, and he basically wipes them out using the arm of judgment through the Assyrian army. And the Assyrian army sweeps in and basically transports the 10 tribes of Israel into other lands, probably over into, in modern day, northern Iraq. And they're transported away from the land. And they are forced to settle in places that are unfamiliar with them. Part of the strategy that we know about from archaeology is that the ancient Assyrian army, when they would invade a land, they would relocate those people to another place that was unfamiliar and get them to intermarry with people that were native to that place. And so there's all this intermarrying that happens. And it's essentially a way to wipe out the ethnic identity of a particular people. But not only did they take the Jews away from their land, they brought foreigners into Israel and resettled them there and then caused them to intermarry with the Jews that were left there. And that is really the origin of the Samaritans. And so we have in chapter 17, the backstory of the Samaritans that we're going to see 
in the New Testament and why are the Samaritans hated so much by the Jews in the New Testament? Well, this is why. For the Jews, it's a reminder of their own un covenant unfaithfulness, that they didn't keep God's covenants, that they were the object of God's judgment and then he took them away from the land and then the Assyrians relocated these foreigners here and it's just kind of this intermarriage hodgepodge mess and so these are looked upon as being half-breed Jews and so this sets the ethnic stage for what we will see the bearing fruit in the New Testament in Jesus ministry. Then we get to another major chunk of the story, and that is the story of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the king who was probably the greatest king of Judah since Solomon. He's very faithful to God, and there is a situation where the Assyrians are now threatening Jerusalem. And you can read what Hezekiah did and how he trusted the Lord to fight his battles. Unlike Joash, who paid a tribute to a foreign king for protection, Hezekiah has a different military strategy. His military strategy is trust the Lord to fight the battle. And so you're going to read about that awesome account. But now going back to our big picture story here for a minute of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent and that whole thread that we've been following throughout scripture. This is one of those times where that jumps to the forefront because in the story of Joash, things look dim. They look dark. Adaliah is, is on a rampage to wipe out all of the princes of Judah so that there will be no more descendants of King David. And yet Joash is saved as a, as a tiny child. Here, once again, Hezekiah and Jerusalem and the seed of David looks like it's about to be wiped out by the Assyrian army. Hezekiah's strategy from the outside doesn't look smart. The smart thing to do would be to pay a tribute to the Assyrians to go away. But Hezekiah wisely seeks the counsel of the prophet and he pleads before the Lord and the Lord saves Judah. This is such a great story because just when it seems like the serpent is about to wipe out the seed of the woman, once again, God preserves his people. He preserves that faithful remnant so that the Messiah can be born. And we are here today in part because of Hezekiah's faithfulness to trust the Lord. The history of Israel is our history too. This is part of what forms our identity as God's people. And so when you talk about your family tree, this is part of the way that we can think about our own family tree is that these are our forefathers. This is where we come from. This is our spiritual heritage and we are connected into that. Unfortunately, once again, we see after the pinnacle of spiritual triumph, there's a spiritual fall and we saw this with Noah and we saw this with David and now we see this with Hezekiah. Toward the end of chapter 20, we see that there are some visitors from Babylon who come to visit Hezekiah and Hezekiah has a moment of 
unguarded lack of boundaries where he shows these emissaries from Babylon pretty much all of his riches. He shows them the palace. He shows them the temple. And I'm not sure how God would have felt about uh, bringing Gentiles into the temple. He describes in verse 15, there is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. And then Isaiah's judgment, hear the word of the Lord, the time will come surely when everything in your palace and that all of your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is a judgment against Hezekiah for kind of showing off and not having good judgment about being circumspect about who his enemies were and entrusting the Lord and and not showing off his riches. This is a great account. I really hope you enjoy reading through the book of 2 Kings. There's a lot of action. There's a lot happening. And it's come to be one of my favorite books, just reading about God sustaining his covenant people. He is in the business of preserving his covenant people. And that's you and I, we are in God's covenant people. He promises to preserve a faithful remnant of his people, his church, no matter how bad the world gets, his church will not be wiped out from the face of the earth. Sure. There might be some of us who end up dying for our faith. We might suffer for our faith, but as a whole, the church as God's people as the body of Christ will not be wiped out from the face of the earth. We will be sustained until God's judgment comes. And like the sword of Jehu that wipes out the house of Ahab, God will someday put things aright and bring judgment to those who have defied him and bring reward to those who have obeyed him. Well, that's all for now. I look forward to continuing our journey next week. We're going to pick it up and finish the book of 2 Kings. We'll get into the book of 1 Chronicles. It's going to be great. And I look forward to rejoining with you next week.